Olaso. This afternoon, it's getting a little bit predictable, you know the sequence. We're going to return to the meditative cultivation of loving kindness. I'd like to remind you of my favorite mantra in English, I think it is, for the moment what we attend to is reality. William James. And it's relevant in so many ways, and here's one of them. And that is if we don't give our attention to others, they won't be very real for us. And it's possible on a crowded subway, it's possible in airports, it's possible in the most crowded of all places to not attend to anybody at all. Be caught up in one's own thoughts, one's own desires, hopes and fears and so forth. And all the people around us are basically just obstacles on an obstacle course. You know, what stands between oneself, he escaped, which is good. And so it's very easy to attend to others uh, as simply appearances, as if they were simply appearances arising in the substrate. Of course, this is classic I-it relationship. And it struck me as, it's as if one's observing others uh, only with one eye. One eye, right? It's kind of flat. You lose the, you lose the depth, you lose the, the three-dimensionality with just one eye, right? And so, obviously, that's a metaphor. But we can just be attending to appearances. So, when we attend to others, we may attend, oh yes, uh, very attractive, not so attractive, uh, and that, <laughs> you know, or whatever, you know, but just put them into the little categories. <laughs> Sorry, I've had practice on that one. <laughs> You know, but just basically like, don't like, indifferent, you know, we can put, we can attend in that way. A potential customer, possible customer, forget about it. There's just so many ways we can do it. Yes, we're attending. Yes, they're becoming real, but they're becoming real as flat, as flat. Just what can this person do for me? Yes, no, indifferent. And so when we take this principle and we apply it to loving kindness, the cultivation of loving-kindness, I think it becomes obvious, and maybe it's especially for us in the modern world, I'm not quite sure, but I suspect so, that this kind of one-eyed vision, this two-dimensional flat vision that we can so easily apply to others, we also apply to ourselves. It's very, very easy. You know, it happens a lot. Looking into the mirror, looking at our thoughts, our moods, our desires, the dissatisfaction we might feel with the meditation and feeling, oh, I'm not as good as I thought it would be. This person over there had a lucid dream, this person unconditional love, this person bliss, that luminosity. And I got what? An empty, an empty bag of peanuts. <laughs> you know? I got nothing. <laughs> Gee, everybody's better than I am. Yes, that sucks. And so then I become a flat meditator. A flat meditator. Obviously not nearly as good as most of the people in the room which is clearly true for pretty much all of us. <laughs> it's just the opposite of, what is it, Lake Wobegon, where all the children are above average? All you meditators are all below average. <laughs> that is, of course, me too. Uh, we can just flip it around, you know, of course. So there we are, this flat vision we can apply to ourselves, we can apply to others, and the cultivation of loving-kindness. What a, what a marvelous way to begin. I mean, there is a sequence to these four immeasurables, loving-kindness, arousing us, bringing depth to the vision. That when we attend to another person, it's not just, um, you know, the gender, the age, the attractiveness, the smartness, and so forth and so on. It's the first thing is, oh, wow, sentient being. 
Somebody's looking back. Somebody's looking back. There it is. And not just looking back like, you know, like a robot that has artificial intelligence, but looking back and has hopes and fears, joys and sorrows like ourselves. You know, getting that, actually getting that. So loving kindness, starting with ourselves, with both eyes open, seeing the depth that we ourselves are not just appearances, we are full-fledged, three-dimensional, sentient beings with the capacity, of, the capacity to find happiness, genuine happiness, and the worthiness to do so. And when we really take that into account and we allow ourselves to fully, without reservation, care for ourselves, care for ourselves, you know, then once we've attended to that with this three-dimensional three vision, this depth vision of ourselves, then attending to others, not that difficult, not that difficult. And as William James said, all we need to do is linger, just focus the attention and then keep it there. And then almost like as if you're achieving samatha, it becomes realer and realer and realer. And lo and behold, then loving kindness starts to tap up, you know, flow up from the bottom. I was speaking with one of you just a couple of days ago, a day or two ago, and this person commented something that I think we can all resonate with. And that is when we start this conceptual practice, it is conceptual, it's thoughts, it's images, it's working, on the surface, it's working from the surface down, right? Trying to cultivate something that is not superficial. That is, we all know loving kindness is not conjured up out of thoughts and images and light rays going in and out and so forth. That's not where loving kindness comes from. It comes from a much greater depth. But the image that, the, or the metaphor that I, I suggested to this person, I resonate with it and I think she does as well, is that as we begin this practice, we just launch in. Again, if we can throw all of our expectations aside, not practice it for one, five, ten, ten times, and then feel, guys, I just, I just guess I'm not one of those loving kinds. I'm more of a conceptual kind. I'm more cognitive. I'm more left brain. I guess it must be the right brain, the bhakti people that, can, that are really good at this, but I'm just not much good at it. Maybe I should just give up. You know, because I'm not one of those kind of loving kinds. It's very easy to draw that conclusion. And the practice in the early phases can be really quite conceptual, quite intellectual. It can easily slip into kind of a ritual that we do, especially if it just comes coming out the mouth, you know, in liturgy. But this is the practice, without repeating things I've said in the past, hopefully, it's working from the top down as we follow this developmental model. It's like being out in a, let's say out in the desert, where the, you have this baked clay soil, really hard, a lot of sun baking it, almost like it's a pot. But you really need water, and you're pretty confident there is water down there. You, maybe you had your divining rod or what have you. So you get your pickaxe out, but you try to get that pick, pickaxe into this baked clay soil, and it hardly makes a dent. So you say, okay, bring in the hose. And you kind of hose it down a bit, maybe throw a bucket of water, and then, you, then the pickaxe goes down, oh, half an inch. Well, that's better than nothing. And you pick at it and then throw some more water on it and pickaxe it. This is just hard work. But you just keep doing it. You just keep doing it. And then you get down a foot, and you get down three feet, and five feet, and lo and behold, the divining rod turned out to be correct. You keep on throwing a bit more water in and softening up this topsoil. And then the pickaxe goes down, and then lo and behold, something really surprising happens. You hit the groundwater. Just that one pick, and that wasn't special pick. It wasn't any. It wasn't a golden pick or a, you know, a hundred pound pick. It was just. But then suddenly something's different, and you find the water is flowing up from beneath, and it's flowing and it's flowing and it's flowing. And all you have to do is watch it. 
You don't have to throw any more water on it. You've tapped into the wellsprings of your own heart. Buddha nature, really, Rikpa, the very source of loving kindness. And it's one of the greatest discoveries we can make to see that there aren't some people who are just loving and other ones just not loving. There's some for whom the groundwater is a bit more towards the surface and others for whom it's a bit deeper down. But we all have the groundwater. Of that I have no question. So, for this practice we'll go to now, I'm giving, again, most of the words at the beginning. We'll have less as I actually go into the practice. What I'd like to do is to embrace fully both of the dimensions of well-being, of happiness. Because as much as the Dharma is really primarily about the cultivation of genuine happiness, no question about it. Uh, because everything else, if everything else, Dharma is for genuine happiness and everything else, dentistry and contracting and everything else we do is pretty much for hedonic pleasure, right? Marriage counseling, most psychological counseling is for the sake of hedonic well-being. And that's because it's important. Not because they're being trivial. It's because it's important. So as we cultivate first loving-kindness for ourselves and then we'll extend out to our ever-so-transient Dharma community here, what I would invite you to do is to first focus on the hedonic. And that is those things that bring you happiness. And this is not with sarcasm. It's not like, okay, now finish with that trivial stuff. Having good health, having enough to eat, having lodging, having a conducive environment, uh, congenial people, warm-hearted, good people to engage with, that you support their happiness, they support yours. There's a broad, broad array there of these aspects of hedonic well-being. This too, the aspiration of that is very much part of loving-kindness. And then upon the basis of that, when you get a sense, and it's entirely individual, what degree of hedonic well-being is enough? How much is enough? You know, that we say, okay, the world has given me what I need. I might have worked hard for it. That may be certainly necessary. But this is as much as I really need from the world, from outside, from the stimulus-driven kind of well-being. This is, this is enough. I could always get more, but the dividends start dwindling. Get twice as much, five times as much, and so forth. And so you might get a sense that would be sufficient. And then upon the basis of that, then let your heart soar. Let your imagination soar. What's your vision? What's your vision of flourishing? What would truly bring you happiness? So we begin there and then extend to each person, I would suggest, in this room. I think we all know each other, at least each other's faces. We've seen each other a lot. You may not know everybody's name because you're not here and, and, and meeting everybody, as I have the advantage of meeting you all each week. But you know a number of people here, and you know everybody by face. And so let's proceed along that line. We'll start here. And of course, wonderfully, three out of four of our walls here are all glass, so symbolic. These barriers here that separate us from the inside group and the outside group are transparent. And this one, yeah, let's not give it too much attention. Okay? So let's jump in. Let's have one session.
Let's first give our attention to our own body, our own minds. Giving our attention, tending to, watching over, looking after, and caring for, all built into the word, this verb to tend, to attend. Settle your body, your breathing, your mind in the natural state. The Dalai Lama has suggested that our primary impulse for every human being, in fact, even for every sentient being, is the impulse of caring, manifesting so obviously or most obviously in our caring about whether we find happiness or suffering. As we have often in the practice of awareness of awareness rested in the sheer experience of knowing, you might consider, is it possible to rest in the experience of caring? Caring for yourself to start with. Even the mental afflictions of craving, of hostility, come from the impulse of caring. If we didn't care, we wouldn't crave, and we wouldn't feel aversion or hostility towards anything. We wouldn't care.
arouse this primal impulse of caring. In the aspiration of loving kindness, the yearning for your own happiness and the causes of your own well-being. And bring to mind now, individually, what would make you happy in terms of what the world can offer. And the world has a great deal to offer. What would make you happy? What would be sufficient? With each out-breath, with or without visualization as we've done in the past, arouse the yearning that you may indeed find such happiness in the world, that you'll find enough. Imagine flourishing in this dimension of well-being, the hedonic, without which flourishing in any other way may be quite unfeasible, even impossible.
And once you've envisioned what would be sufficient, what would be enough, through your own efforts, your striving, your hard work, and the help of others, such that, such that all of your hedonic or basic needs are met, and perhaps a bit more. Then let your imagination soar and envision what would bring you the greatest fulfillment, your heart's desire. Imagine fully and completely discovering the inner treasures within your own spirit, the wellsprings of joy, of virtue. Imagine them completely unleashed, unveiled, flowing freely. And with each outbreath, arouse the yearning that it may be so, that you may indeed realize your greatest aspirations. From this fullness of being, now let your attention alight or come to rest and attend to one individual after another within our community here. And Bahulia, of course, who is now on her journey home to Russia. Each one. and arouse the same yearning 
for their hedonic well-being, for their ultimate well-being.
let your awareness expand out beyond our temporary community. We weren't a community, we are a community, and once again we'll go our separate ways, still with a strong sense of connection, but it simply shows the porosity or the porousness of any community. It's open. Expand your awareness out into an ever-expanding field, arousing the yearning with each out-breath that all those around us may be well and happy, both in terms of their hedonic needs and well-being, as well as in terms of genuine happiness. For a moment, release all appearances and objects and let your awareness rest in its own nature. Bring the session to a close. There are a number of questions that were put up on the bulletin board. I've not looked at any of them yet, so I'll be as surprised as you are.
So here's an anonymous one, because it's such an incredibly intimate and personal question. And that is, can you give examples mm, or samples of symmetry breaking? So it's a cosmic, a cosmic question. Um, if I were a cosmologist, I could give some really detailed and very informative accounts. I'm not, but I have studied cosmology a little bit with a lot of interest, but more just very general. So nothing that I say will be definitive. But the very notion of symmetry breaking, symmetry breaking, um, comes from physics and especially from cosmology. Within cosmology, cosmogony, and that is the evolution of the universe from the ever so mysterious Big Bang, going back to the singularity of time equals zero, you know, before even the first tiniest fraction of a second of the Big Bang was manifesting. And so what I, from what I've read of this, I found very intriguing, very mysterious, and that is that in the very earliest phases of the universe, or perhaps even before, this is speculation, but it's not just mine and it's not just philosophers, it's very brilliant physicists, cosmologists, suggesting that possibly before the Big Bang, which means we're definitely in the realm of speculation, but then it moves from speculation to physics and to astrophysics. But the one speculation is that prior to the Big Bang, at least in our corner of the universe in this realm, there was simply a, a melted vacuum, a melted vacuum. Now, it is widely accepted, I think probably quite universally accepted, that the vacuum in modern physics is not simply empty. It's not just a sheer total nothing. But there is, in the very nature of space, there is energy. And there are theories that suggest that the very nature of space, which it man once it manifests, once it is expanding, in the, is the notion of space itself being quantized. Space is not just a plenum or a homogeneous three-dimensional spread, but actually space itself comes in quanta, particles of space. And His Holiness Dalai Lama has been very intrigued by this because this is also a notion in Kala Chakra, that space itself, it's called Namke, Namke Dute, Namke Dute, space particles, very ancient concept, it's, it's Kala Chakra, and that all the manifold worlds of earth, water, fire, air, all of these emerge out of particles of space or quanta of space. But without going into, because we have some, I'm sure, other very interesting questions here, but this is interesting in terms of metaphor, metaphor. And I'll return to that at the end. Um, but the notion of a melted vacuum in the sense that it's purely symmetrical, and symmetrical means within it there is simply no this and that. There is, there is complete, excuse me, there is complete homogeneity, a complete smoothness, there is no clumpiness. There's no little bit of matter here and some energy over there and so forth. Completely symmetrical from all perspectives. And then something occurred, and now flat out no one knows what that is. But something occurred, something must have occurred, one presumes, to break this initial symmetry that gave rise to the Big Bang. And now suddenly something happens. And that means something happens means something different than something not happening, which means already a symmetry is broken. And then what we find, and now we're in physics, as soon as you, as soon as you have 
the beginning of the Big Bang, then you're talking physics. It's not simply speculation. There is certainly speculation involved, but it is physics. From, what, from that moment, from the time of the Big Bang, from that first tiniest fraction of a second, then from what I've read from people like Andre Lindt, John Wheeler, and others who worked in this field, is a series of symmetry breaking. And the big picture is that the universe goes, that is the, the vacuum, space itself, goes, shifts by a process, sequence of symmetry breaking, especially during the inflationary period, which is a very radical period of extremely rapid, very rapid accelerating inflation of the universe, and then it slowed down. In these early, very early formation of the universe, there's a series of symmetry breaking, which means that homogeneity is broken again and again, and you get then, you get matter, you get energy, you get different types of matter, you get different forces different types of forces, electromagnetic magnetic force, gravitational force, and so forth. And so now these are becoming differentiated. And it's not just one, but there's a series of these symmetry breaking. Um, and in the process, and this is the metaphor that I love, from the completely melted vacuum, in which the symmetry is perfect, that melted vacuum then goes goes through a process of freezing. And what we experience now, as I look at the the hill across the way with all the dense jungle on top of it, that is simply one expression of frozen vacuum. And as I attend to each person here and the building and the environment, as I attend to myself, my body, and everything that I attend to, every object that arises to the mind, everything that is measured scientifically, all of these consist of elements of frozen vacuum. So this is a theme that comes out of modern cosmology. It also comes out of quantum field theory, which is the union of special relativity and quantum mechanics. And the theory, and this I did study fairly extensively, but now it's 25 years ago, uh, that all configurations of mass energy, all configurations of mass energy, are simply configurations or formations of space space. They are not other than space, they consist of space. But we bring this into quantum cosmology and this whole notion of these broken symmetries, and then it is a matter of the melted vacuum with its perfect symmetry, then becoming a galaxy here, a galaxy there, energy here, matter there, antimatter here, matter there, dark matter here, matter there, dark energy, energy, and so forth, the world of this and that. Okay. Now, why I found that so intriguing, number one, the theme that all phenomena emerge from space, dissolve back into space, and consist of space. It's a central theme of Dzogchen. But also the metaphor, also the metaphor. And that is, it is the very act of grasping that freezes the Dhammadhatu, which is one of perfect symmetry. And that is this primordial consciousness absolute space of phenomena, Dhammadhatu. And it's called in Tibetan Yeshikilung, or Jnanavayu, primordial energy, energy of primordial consciousness. Those three, completely indivisible, completely symmetrical. There's no partitioning amongst them. This is in a realm beyond time. That's perfect symmetry. So there's no divisions of time, past, present, and future. That's the Dzogchen view. To be, to know this is who you are, not only to realize it, but to know this is who you are. 
you are pristine awareness, indivisible from absolute space and this primordial energy. This is who you are. Always have been, always will be. But then why do we think that I'm over, why do I think I'm over here and you're over there? The symmetry was broken. The symmetry is broken into subject and object, into I and you. My side and your side, craving and hostility, the symmetry is broken, it's broken and it's reified, and we wind up with a clumpy world, a world of stuff that seems to be very substantial and bumps into each, all of the little clumps bumping into each other. So the parallel with the Dzogchen view, and you find this in Vajrayana, and less explicitly, but I think it's there, also in the teachings of the Buddha recorded in the Pali Canon. I read it just last night, this statement so often quoted from the Buddha, in which he said, I'm paraphrasing, but closely, he said, were there, no, were there no nirvana, if there were no nirvana, no unconditioned dimension of reality, which from, again, from the Mahayana, Dzogchen view, that unconditioned, that nirvana is nothing other than Dhammadhatu. Nirvana is Dhammadhatu. Nirvana is emptiness, shunyata is Dhammadhatu. And there in the Pali Canon, the Buddha says, if there were, I'll just paraphrase, if there were no nirvana, there would be no samsara. If there were no nirvana, the unconditioned, beyond coming and going, beyond time, there would be no time, there would be no coming and going, there would be no birth, aging, sickness, and death, if there weren't nirvana. Something of a symmetry there. So when you realize ultimate reality as is, you see it as a perfect symmetry beyond time, but, it's, but with grasping that same reality, is then congealed as samsara. But what if you could see them both simultaneously? If you could view samsara and nirvana simultaneously as with two eyes, and then the eyes focus in on one, and you see they're of the same nature. And that is the Dzogchen view. But in fact, ultimately, they're not of different nature. So something like that. Okay. Uh-oh. I'm going to put Adelina's book to the side just for a moment. <laughs> Chapter, what is this, 13? <laughs> but they're all good questions, but I know it can't be short. Uh, here's one from Anna. Yes, and it's not an anonymous, thank goodness. Do you know what exactly the hypnagogic imagery is? I perceive them with the same vividness as in a lucid dream. Very true, that is a common experience. I mean, one could, I, I thought you were going to say, I experience them with the same vividness as if I'm awake, and it's very, very close to that. And some lucid dreams, or even non-lucid dreams, they're so vivid, you just couldn't believe you're not, you're not, how do you say, not awake. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I had a dream that was so vivid, and then the thought arose, might this be a dream? And instead of following my own, you know, taking my own medicine, following my own advice, and this is the, my, the advice of Stephen LeBerge and then the dream yoga tradition, I just thought I would do the stupid thing. And that is, see, well, how realistic is. And it was really realistic. That assured me I wasn't dreaming. Which I was. Okay? okay. So now I can quote, I checked it out on the internet, make sure I got Mark Twain's statement correct. Now I have it correct. It ain't what you don't know that gets you in trouble, it's what you do know for sure that gets you into trouble. <laughs> that you're sure about. That's what gets you in trouble. That was a little for sure. I had missed that when I quoted him in the past. So this hypnagogic imagery, again, for any who, you might, who might not remember the referent of this term, hypnagogic imagery, probably many, many 
Perhaps all of you have experienced this. When you're not quite awake and you're not quite asleep, you may have this extraordinarily vivid imagery, and it doesn't have to be just visual. It may be auditory, it may be a fragrance, it may be any of the, any of the senses, but it comes very vividly to mind. And it could be a whole stream of images or appearances arising, but so vivid, much, much better than you could possibly visualize unless you've achieved shamatha. So referring to this hypnagogic imagery, if, there are, if they are small dreams, that means that I'm dreaming with all my senses aware as a sleepwalker. They're not small dreams. Nope, they're not small dreams. Uh, from what I know, because Stephen Leberge is you know, a very fine uh, dream researcher, and we've had many, many hours together in conversation and co-teaching, know when you're in hypnagogic imagery, uh, you're not yet in REM sleep, you're not yet in dream sleep. And you're not yet in non-REM sleep either. You're not quite asleep yet. So it's right on the cusp. I might have mentioned earlier that my interpretation, so this could be dead wrong, but my interpretation, why is it so clear? And my interpretation is that we're near there in the hypnagogic, that is, I can speak first person, because you say that, uh, Anna says that um, your senses, all your senses are aware. Uh, when I've had hypnagogic imagery, my, I'm... I mean, I'm laying in a dark room, so dark and usually quiet, so there's not much to be aware of except for tactile sensations. But when I'm really focusing on those, that hypnagogic imagery, the experience of my body kind of fades out. But the hypnagogic imagery generally doesn't have a storyline. It doesn't have a whole narrative. You know, it's just these images coming up, right? And so my interpretation of that is that it's like at least halfway to shamatha in terms of, only in one way, in terms of your awareness being withdrawn from the physical senses, which means there's just not so much competition. And so when an image comes to mind, which is happening throughout the course of the day, if some image comes to mind now, well, it's got all this other, other competition. It would be like, you know, like, a, like a musician, like a violinist getting up on the stage in a great concert hall and starting to play. But in the meantime, there's a dump truck driving through the hall, and there are, there are a thousand people, and they're all having a conversation. There's a brass band over here, and, uh, you know, and somebody over here is just coughing and coughing and coughing. But there is the violin playing. You know, well, well you, you know, you'll hear the violin, but it's going to be so drowned out by all the other noise. Even though it's playing at full volume, it's not very impressive. Whereas that same violin, if the dump truck is gone and everybody else is quiet, then, oh, it's radiantly clear. So that's my sense of it. Could be wrong, but I doubt that it's entirely wrong. So, but no, they're not dreams. There's something right there on the threshold between waking and sleeping. The, generally speaking, you might recall, um, st statistically speaking, from the time that you do fall asleep, so the hypnagogic imagery is over, and you go into non-REM sleep, usually it's about 90 minutes, roughly 90 minutes, before you enter into the first dream cycle, at least in terms of something that can be measured objectively. And what they can be observed objectively is the rapid eye movement. That's very easy to, easy to de detect. And then there's, uh, if, you, if you were in a sleep lab, then they would check the EEG, and there are signatures or t kind of patterns of brain activity that are strongly indicative of dreaming. And then there's the galvanic skin response and uh, uh, muscle paralysis. And those are also indicative of dreaming. 
So these are objective measures, but by the time you line those up and they're all thumbs up, yes, 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 the chances are extremely high the person is dreaming. And that's usually about 90 minutes after you fall asleep. So one more reason to suspect the hypnagogic imagery are not small dreams. Are they mentioned in the Buddhist literature as part of the experiences of the shamatha process? Not that I've seen. I've never seen it. I would I'd have no idea uh, what, how you translate hypnagogic imagery. I would just describe it and say it in Tibetan. Um, so I know nothing about it in Tibetan. I've never seen it referenced anywhere. <laughs> oh, not so. So we, have, we, do, we do have some time left. Let's see what, is, what Adelina's latest epistle is. Oh, not so. So, from Adelina. Yesterday I felt so touched by the loving-kindness guided meditation with reality rising up to meet you. And as an alchemist transmuting adversity, being able to live, live the blessing aspect in it. So thank you. My question is connected with this. You've named four approaches in Tibetan. Care and healing. Oh yes, oh yes, yes, right. These are four, the four modes of enlightened activity. Tinle Namaji. So, um, so it's healing, so literally, it's pacifying, enriching. Um, the third, wangele, wangele, is more forceful. I think that'd probably be a good translation. Forceful enlightened activity. It may be manifest as protecting, it may manifest as containing. Uh, some have translated, I think it's not a good translating, translation as magnetizing. But that's not in the word. Wang does not mean magnetize. So you may with the power of your force, force of your character, force of your presence, you may magnetize people, but that would just be one aspect. So, wang really means force or power. And then finally, the, um, if needed, ferocity, ferocity or wrathfulness, yes. So there we are. So within that context, all of these being modes of enlightened activity, all of them having the same motivation. That is, if these are truly bodhisattva deeds or Buddha activity, each one will be motivated by the same wellspring, namely compassion. Right? So they're all equally compassionate, although if you looked at the surface, if you looked at it with one eye, just saw the surface, you'd say, oh, but the person, the nun, the nurse working in the hospital, that's so benevolent. This person engaging in ferocity, oh, that's not so nice. So one could easily distinguish, you know, start cut, cutting it up, not seeing the underlying motivation. And so, Karasa, what was that statement? I learned it when I was in the Buddhist school dialectics. Or, Kansa, yeah. Individuals are not able to take the measure of individuals, only a Buddha is able to do so. Or the Christian, judge not that, be, that ye be not judged. So it's, it's kind of like a resounding theme throughout the Buddhist tradition that we need all of us, boy, do I, need, I speak to myself when I say this, need to exercise caution some humility, maintain a tentative attitude when we, when we evaluate others. It's easy to get, a, to get a lock, to get a lock. I can see this person, I can read this person like a book. I can see this person through and through. Boy, do I get this person. We get a lock, we get something that makes sense to us. We've made the appearances intelligible. And then we lock and then we reify. Dicey. It's really dicey to do that. Shantideva, in one of, I think it was the sixth chapter, the sixth chapter of his Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life. I think it's there, I'm not sure. But he says, you never know who's a Bodhisattva. There's no guarantee. Some, I mean, we don't need to give examples. One, one, could, one could imagine certain types of beings 
say, well, not likely there. I mean, this is malevolent, this is cruel, this is vicious. Probably right, probably not a bodhisattva. We don't know for sure. Because the Buddhas, the bodhisattvas will manifest in myriad ways. In very humble professions, exalted professions, so many different ways. And manifesting wide variety of behaviors. So the question, first question here is, as here in retreat, we are all in various degrees experiencing turbulence, yeah? and trying to care for ourselves and our spiritual friends, our Kalyanamitras. Can you elaborate on the way that you see these four aspects can be applied and lived by us? As with the four measurables, loving-kindness, in that sequence, in the sequence, it's part of the teaching, the, this rolls off the tongue in Tibetan, shi ge wang ta. They don't say ta wang ge ji, shi ge wang ta, ji ge wang ta, ji ge wang ta. It's pacifying, enriching, forceful, and ferocious. It goes in that sequence. Um, and to my mind, and I've mentioned this before, so maybe I'll be a little bit brief. But when we have a sense that something needs to be done, recall that in the cultivation of loving-kindness and compassion in particular, especially these two, that this meditative cultivation, we may spend 10 years in a cave cultivating loving-kindness and not doing much manifest in the world at all, but the whole idea is that the, the heart is cultivated, we open up the inner reservoirs of loving-kindness, compassion, of caring, and we bring it out, and so it's full, it's rich, and it's even, right? And it's deep, it's sincere, it's truly from the heart. And then we step out, we step out of the cave, the meditation retreat center, what have you. And the whole idea is that we're poised. Remember that, poised, yeah? So that if, we, if we, we view something, whether it's the dog running away from the other dog yelping, but then we say, ah, I think we all saw immediately, it wasn't being chewed up, it did escape in that particular episode. So nothing we needed to do. If we saw one dog really chewing on the dog right here, we might actually want to just get out there and break it up. Water, I understand, is the best. But let's not stand by, you know. Here we're all meditating loving-kindness and the dog is being chewed up. Well, okay, let's break that one up. And so it poises us for action. And so when we're out in the world, whether, you know, just engaging really with other sentient beings explicitly, and we see something, something could be done. In other words, it's time not, for, not just for being, it's time for doing, Right? then in sequence, and this happens so intuitively that as I speak about it, it will, be, it will sound rather mechanical and sequential, very linear and conceptual. But I think more intuitively, it just flows. And it is the first, when we see something could be done, uh, the first option that might arise would be pacifying, calming, right? No harm anywhere. No, hardly any danger of harm. We're just going in to soothe, to, pe- to calm, to pacify, to soothe. I love that word. And so that could be the first. And on some occasions, you know, we've had experience of this over the last few days. Some occasions, simply soothing is not sufficient. I'll be right with you just to finish this, this phrase. But some occasions, as with our Dharma friend, just soothing was not as sufficient. We, we can all give a hug. We can all hold. We can all be tender. And you were. It was wonderful to see. But a bit more than that was needed. Right? And then we brought in, especially two individuals, who can enrich 
enriched from years of experience, knowledge, method. We could draw on other people's expertise, the person in, in Phuket. We didn't go, we didn't, didn't go to him for a hug. Came to him for stage two. Enrich us. Give us something that we don't have. That could really be helpful here. You have it, we don't. Enrich us in some way. He did. He did just what we asked him to do, right? Sometimes simply in enriching, we say, oh, but that's not enough. Some more force is necessary. It's not so much information transfer or goods transfer. It's a transfer of force. It's strength. It's a transfer of strength, a manifestation of strength. That something needs to be stopped, probably needs to be stopped soon. And then that comes in. And sometimes the strength won't do it. There needs to be an edge to it. Otherwise, it's not enough. So my sense is if we go in that sequence, each time with the, motiv the same motivation, but bringing in the wisdom, then there's the safe route. Whether we're here in retreat or two weeks from now, wherever we are, that'll be it. But you had your hand up to for a follow-up. That was enough? Okay. So let's go to the second question, final. Where, next to allusions in the Bodhisattvatara, Shantideva chapter 3, as you named, can a description of the four approaches be found in texts? I don't think it's found in stage three, in chapter 3. I don't think it's there. I don't recall it being there. Um, and I don't know of any text. I've heard this through the oral, oral teachings, and that there, there's no doubt that they are textually based. Uh, it's, uh, there may be a text on it. Mugi was a very good scholar, has had more formal training in monastic universities than I have. Um, said he doesn't know of one. There may be some, it's, I mean, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of Tibetans just in, in Tibetan, let alone other languages. Probably there's something out there. I've never seen it in English, that's for sure. But I've not seen it in Tibetan either. So it's one of those things where you glean it here, you get a teaching here and a teaching there. And who knows, maybe, maybe tomorrow somebody will publish a text on the four modes of enlightened activity, but I've never seen it. Yeah. It manifests, of course, this is, this is straight Mahayana. This, there, you know, there was never any allusion to um, Vajrayana in anything I said. So even in simply the Bodhisattva-yana, with no references to Vajrayana at all, there's still an occasion, on occasion, as a last resort, for, for violence. And the classic, whenever giving any classic teachings, and this is where it comes from, uh, here's a classic, a classic story, and, and it's said to be historically true. I have no way of knowing. don't really care much one way or another. It's a great classical story, though. And that was of a bodhisattva. Maybe it was even... Uh, Anila, was it even the bodhisattva? Was it the, the Buddha in a previous life? Of the, the captain and the 500? It was a Chataka then, yeah? Yeah, so... Um, so, an account from the, one of the Buddha's earlier lives. And he was ca a captain of a ship, and it must have been a doozy of a ship, because it had 500 people on board. 500. And it turned out... That, the, that one of the people on board was, we would call them nowadays, a terrorist. A terrorist. And he was going to rob and kill everybody. He was a, a pirate. That would be the real word. He was a pirate. Uh, and he had the wherewithal to really do some massive damage, maybe even kill everybody and just take over, take over the whole ship and kill as many people as he wanted. And the captain saw this and... Just to cut to the chase, he recognized there was only one way to stop this person from just doing a massacre, a massacre. And that was to take this person's life, to kill the pirate. And so he did. And that's an act of ferocity. You take somebody's life, that's a, that's a pretty ferocious deed. And so he did. He killed him. 
uh, and in so doing, saved everybody else on board. But from a Buddhist perspective, he did something also in addition to that of tremendous significance. He prevented this person from killing so many other people on the ship. To kill so many people would be terrible karma. Frankly, it would be much worse karma than simply being killed. And so he protected him from that deed and protected everybody else from being the recipient of that deed or the victims of that deed. And therefore, that too is a bodhisattva deed. So that's classic. It's almost like archetypal. So let's never, we, don't, we don't ask, how did he know? How did he know he couldn't have done blah, blah, blah? We just say, no, it's an archetypal story. There it is. Uh, when we get into Vajrayana, then, this, then you see it really manifestly. And it's in the iconography. It's in, this is where it comes up most explicitly. It's there in the Sutrayana, in the Bodhisattva teachings, but it's really manifest and comes up, comes up a lot. Uh, as, you, as, you in, as you generate yourself as an enlightened being, archetypally, coming out of emptiness, generating yourself as a Buddha, and you may be white in color, as in white Tara. She's just, she's just the embodiment of pacifying, calming, soothing, and healing. You may manifest yourself as golden Manjushri or Vaishravana, the god of wealth. Manjushri, the enlightened embodiment of wisdom. Well, wisdom is a great enrichment. Vaishravana, the god of wealth, tangible enrichment, golden color, no surprise there. And then many, many deities who are brilliant red. Vajrayagini, great power. Vajrayagini, so feminine embodiment. Red Tara, feminine embodiment, very powerful. And then many other male, male deities as well, and they often look, they look, they look very powerful, right? Uh, and so that would be signifying that. And then a host of indigo, or deep blue, Yamantaka, the wrathful manifestation of Manjushri. So it's wisdom, but wisdom in its wrathful aspect, and it's not just the color, but you see his ornamentation and what's in his hands and so forth. You say, oh, this man's ready for combat, and I don't want to be on the other side, you know? And so all of this is indicating that each of these has its place, but in Vajrayana it has its place if and only if it's stemming from bodhicitta, nothing else is sufficient in terms of motivation, and it is guided by wisdom, and very much including the wisdom of realizing emptiness. If it's not that, then it's just violence, or it's just power, it's just mundane. So it comes up very, very explicitly and in great detail in the Vajrayana altogether. Okay? But when it all is said and done, uh, it manifests spontaneously. That is, for the Buddhists in particular. They don't, need to, they don't need to go to the Rolodex and think, oh, can't do the pacifying. How about, no, nope, can't do that. Oh, can't, oh, phooey, I have to do ferocity. They don't do it sequentially like that, you know? It just, pew, as spontaneously as the moon reflects its image in a pool of water. There it is. Well, that's all. Six o'clock. Let's have dinner.